This morning, we're beginning a four-week series about Jesus. And over the next four weeks, we're going to answer the question, who is Jesus? And we're going to look at four offices that Jesus held. We're going to look at four roles that Jesus performed and continues to perform. This week, we're going to look at Jesus as prophet. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus as priest. Then we're going to look at Jesus as judge. And finally, Jesus as king. But this morning, before we open the Bible, let's pray and let's ask Jesus to bless this time that we have together this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to this place this morning. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to worship you and to sing praises to your name, recognizing, Lord, that you are who you say you are. And Lord, if that is true, we pray that your presence would continue to be in this place. And Lord, as we open this Bible, I pray that you would open up our eyes and that you'd open up our ears so that we can see you and so that we can hear you. And Lord, so that we can know what you would have for each one of us. And we pray and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I was sitting in my living room and I was surfing channels. Now, I know that might sound a little bit crazy, surfing channels, but there are a few things that I love to do more than surf channels. I like to see how many shows or games that I can watch at one time. So I'm like working, I'm working that remote to see how many things I can watch at one time. As a result, I've been told that I am not the best person to watch TV with. Well, as I was surfing channels, as I was surfing channels, I came across the Bravo Network. Now, if you're familiar with the Bravo Network, you know that it is an edifying and educational network. It's not. It's good that you all didn't laugh heartily at that, because then you would be more familiar with the Bravo Network. Well, if you're familiar with the Bravo Network, and even if you're not, there is a show on there that while I was surfing channels, I came across. It's called The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And The Real Housewives of Atlanta, I'm not quite sure why I stopped, but I think it's kind of like a train wreck. When you see a train wreck, you just can't help yourself but look and stare at the train wreck. And so I'm watching this Real Housewives of Atlanta. And now, parenthetically, I am not recommending you watch The Real Housewives of Atlanta. It is just like a train wreck. It's probably something you should not stare at. Well, while I'm watching The Real Housewives of Atlanta, I'm watching and I notice that there are these housewives and they're kind of sitting in a semicircle in a room and there's a moderator and his name's Andy and Andy's asking various questions of these Real Housewives of Atlanta. And he asked the question of one of the housewives, so how was this past season for you? And she says, well, Andy, I have to tell you that it's been a rough season. It's been a rough past year for me. So Andy asks the obvious follow-up question, why? Why has this been a rough season for you? She says, well, it's been a rough season because for the last three months, my husband hasn't spoken to me. For three months, her husband hadn't spoken to her. So Andy says, well, what's going on? Well, she says, he's upset that I'm on this show. And he's upset about some of the things that I did and some of the things that I said. And I think to myself, really? He's upset about that? It's kind of understandable that he's upset about that. But he hasn't talked to her for three months. And then she says this. And this is what really got my attention. She says, but it's okay I'm just living my truth. It's okay. 
I'm just living my truth. And I think to myself, what? Really? You haven't talked to your husband in three months, but you're just living your truth? You may want to find a different truth. That one's not going so well for you. But it's not just on the Real Housewives of Atlanta. I've been hearing that more and more. More and more, I've been hearing people say that they're just living their truth. Now, it's interesting because I think this shows a slight change in the way that we think as a society. You see, as a society, we are moving from moral relativism to moral pluralism. Moral relativism is the idea that, you know what, there's really no objective right or wrong. You do your thing, I do my thing, live and let live, and hey, we'll all be good. That's moral relativism. Moral pluralism recognizes that there is truth. Actually, it recognizes that there may be many truths, but I have my truth, and my truth is right, and your truth is wrong. Ted Olson, no relation, Ted Olson writes about this in the April issue of Christianity Today in an opinion piece. And this is what Ted Olson writes. He writes, it isn't that conservatives and liberals have shrugged off transcendent ideas of right and wrong. Rather, they each appeal to a different transcendent moral foundation. Read here, they each appeal to a different truth. He continues, we are not in an era of moral relativism, but moral pluralism. He is saying here that most people have an opinion of what is right and what is wrong. They have their truth. But these are often very different views on what is right and what is wrong. I think the best example of this is homosexuality. Some people think about homosexuality and they think to themselves, homosexuality is wrong, it's a sin. Other people look at homosexuality and think to themselves, well, it's just natural, it's not really that big a deal. The real big deal is a civil rights issue for people with SSA. Each person believes that they know what is right and they know what is wrong. Each person believes that they have truth. So what are we to do? How are we to determine what is true? How are we to determine what is the transcendent moral foundation? Is what I think is right and true? Is what you think right and true? If I feel something very strongly, does that mean that it's true? Or how about the cannibal that lives in the rainforest of South America? Is what they think right and true? Do you see the problem that this creates? If everybody is able to hold on to their own truth, to their own understanding of what is right and what is wrong, we have a big problem. Because if everybody is able to hold on to their own truth, we are going to have chaos. So how do we know what that transcendent moral foundation is? How do we know what is the right moral transcendent foundation? What is truth? Well, we're going to look to find truth this morning. 
And what I want us to do is I want us to first go back to the first century, and I want us to think about the first century, because in the first century, we need to understand that Rome ruled the world. In the first century, Rome rules all of the world. But Greek thought and philosophy, Greek thought and philosophy defines that world and influences that world and is kind of a determinant thought system within that world. Rome rules, Greek thought and philosophy informs all of the decisions that are made in that world. We know this, one of the reasons we know this is our New Testament is originally written in the Greek language. Greek influence and thought is all over the world in the first century. Now that has many implications. But the implication for us this morning, the one that we want to focus upon, is that the Greeks believed that there was a rational and moral order to the universe. There was a rational and moral order to the universe. And if one lived by and followed that rational and moral order of the universe, that would be a life well lived. So Greek thought. Greek philosophy influences all of the world during the first century, and the Greeks believe that there is a rational and moral order that guides the universe, that if you live by it, that is a life well lived, and we can call that order of nature truth. If you live by that order of nature, you live truth. The Greeks called the rational and moral order of nature, the logos. The Greek word is logos, a rational and moral order of nature, truth. Now hold that thought. Also in the first century, there's a guy. His name is John. John is a disciple. He's a follower of Jesus. And John spends a significant amount of time with Jesus, following him around, listening to him, learning from him, believing in him. And after Jesus goes, after Jesus is no longer there, John decides late in the first century that he is going to write an account of his time with Jesus. John is going to write a book about Jesus. John is going to give his testimony of Jesus. And we call this the gospel of John. This is John's testimony to what happened while he was with Jesus. It is John's testimony of who Jesus is. John is even so kind to give us a purpose statement in his book. He gives us a purpose statement of why he wrote the book or the gospel of John. Look what he writes. He writes this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is John's purpose statement. He writes this account, this testimony of his time with Jesus and says, I'm writing all of this down. I could have wrote a lot of other things, but I am writing all of this down so that you will know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that if you do what? If you believe in him, you are going to have life. So John tells us that he is writing this account so that if we believe in Jesus, we will experience life. Now, let's look at how John begins his account. Let's look at how he starts his story about Jesus. So take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, no problem. Grab the one in the rack in front of you 
And on, in that Bible, it's on page 860. John chapter 1, page 860. Now remember, remember what I said about Greek thought and the order of nature and living by it. John, here at the beginning of his testimony, at the beginning of this story about Jesus, deliberately borrows this Greek philosophical term, logos, and says this about Jesus. In these next few verses that I'm going to read, when you see the English word, word, that's a little confusing, but when you see the English word, word, understand that it is a translation of the Greek word, logos. And here in John 1, John speaks of Jesus as the word. So whenever you read word, think logos and Jesus. Now John 1, 1, John testifies, in the beginning was the word. That is a translation of the Greek word logos. And John is referring to whom? Good job. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now jump down to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you understand what John is saying here to the first century Greek world and what he is saying to us today? He turns things here upside down with his introduction of who Jesus is. The logos, the order of nature, what I said can be defined as truth, is Jesus Christ. He is the logos. He, this logos, this order of nature, truth, was in the beginning. And he, the logos, was with God. And he, the logos, was God. And more, he, the logos, became flesh and lived among us. So here, this is so important, so important for us to see. In these verses, John uses the Greek word logos, the rational and moral order of the universe to describe Jesus. Now we typically translate the word logos into our word, word. Logos is typically translated word. But logos can also be translated reason. And interestingly, the Greeks associated reason with divinity. So let me change the translation a bit and read it back to you using the word reason. In the beginning was reason, and reason was with God, and reason was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And down to verse 14, again, reason became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about this. This changes everything. 
the logos, the rational and moral order of nature, truth was in the beginning, was with God and was God. The logos, truth became flesh. Jesus is the logos. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the rational and moral order of the universe. William Barclay, the theologian, comments on this passage. Look at what he says. Look at what he writes. Jesus is the expression of the mind of God. It is as if John said to the Greeks, for the last six centuries, you have been speaking about the mind of God in the universe. If you want to see what the mind of God is, look at Jesus Christ. Here, full displayed, is that mind of God about which you have always been thinking and talking. The Logos has become flesh. The mind of God has become a person. Barclay is saying, he is reiterating what John is saying. If you want to see and know the mind of God, you need look no further than Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the mind of God incarnate. He is the mind of God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the logos. He is the rational and moral order of nature. Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. Now, I know some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, well, that's really kind of neat. That, all that philosophical stuff, it's great, for, it's, it's great for some. I recognize that. For all of us nerds, it's really cool. But I know that some of you are thinking, okay, I get all that, but what, but what is it? Like, like, can you bring that down? Can you help me? On, can you bring that kind of down to earth so I can kind of further grasp or better understand that Jesus is truth? Well, John does this. John gets that this philosophical explanation of Jesus as truth is kind of philosophical. And so he says, let's, let's look at it, what this looks like in an encounter, an encounter that Jesus has with, with two guys. So Jesus has an encounter with Philip and with Nathaniel. Let's look at the encounter. Look at verse, uh, John 1, beginning in verse 43, and we're going to read through 51. This is an encounter Jesus has with Philip and Nathaniel. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, from this encounter, I want you to see three things. There's three things from this encounter with Jesus that will better help us understand that Jesus is truth. Remember, John has given us a philosophical explanation using the logos, a rational and moral order of nature that is Jesus Christ. 
And now he's going to bring it down to earth and help us understand Jesus' truth through this encounter that Jesus has with Philip and Nathaniel. First, notice how Philip explains who Jesus is to Nathaniel. Verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now this is an interesting explanation. The one Moses wrote about in the law. So let's look at what Moses wrote in the law. And then to do that, we have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and see what Moses wrote. This is what Moses wrote. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, and you must listen to him. Now, in this book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving his final instructions to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. And in those final instructions, Moses says, God is going to raise up a prophet in the future like me from from your fellow Israelites. Moses then goes on to say that this prophecy actually came from God. So later, a couple verses later, in verses 17 and 18, Moses writes, The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command them. Now, let's go back to the first century. And now, back in the first century, we need to understand that there was a clear expectation in the first century that the prophet that Moses spoke about would soon be appearing. They thought that soon this prophet, the one Moses spoke about, would soon be appearing. And here in John 1, Philip identifies Jesus as the one Moses was talking about, the prophet to come. Now, a prophet is someone who reveals God, speaks for God, and reveals the truth of God to the people. A prophet reveals God, speaks for God, and reveals truth. And here, Philip is not suggesting that Jesus is some ordinary prophet. This is the prophet that Moses was talking about. Jesus is the prophet that Moses had promised. Now, there were many other prophets of God between the time of Moses and Jesus. There was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, many, many other prophets. But they were not the prophet. Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is the prophet. There was no one else who could compare to Jesus. So in fact, interestingly, Jesus himself acknowledges this, and it's recorded in John chapter 5, verse 46. Look at what Jesus himself says. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. Moses, Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. I am the prophet that Moses spoke about. Jesus is not a prophet. Jesus is the prophet prophet. And therefore, as the prophet, not only does he reveal God, not only does he speak for God, not only does he deliver truth to the people, as John explained earlier, and as Philip now is confirming, Jesus is truth. Jesus, the Logos, 
is the rational and moral order of the universe. Jesus is truth. Second, I want you to see, I want you to notice Nathaniel's initial response. Notice Nathaniel's initial response. Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, hey, you got to meet this prophet. This is the prophet that Moses was talking about. He's the real deal. He has all the answers to life's questions. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. Look at Nathaniel's initial response, verse 46. Nazareth? Can anything good come from people from there? Nathaniel asked. Ouch. That's kind of harsh. Can anything good come from Nazareth? The implication is nothing good can come from Nazareth. Many people at this time looked down upon people that came from Nazareth, especially those from cities like Jerusalem or from areas that were heavily immersed in Greek thought and Greek culture, areas that perceived themselves to be enlightened and cultured and educated. Nazareth Nazareth was considered to be a backwater in a primitive place. Now we have a hint, a further hint of what may be happening here. Now think about this. Nathaniel feels like he's from the right side of the tracks and Nazareth is clearly the wrong side of the tracks and he's looking down on a person that comes from Nazareth. Our hint's in verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip, Andrew, and Peter are from Bethsaida. Now we know that in the first century, Bethsaida is a very Hellenistic city. It is full of Greek thought and Greek philosophy. It's a very Hellenistic city. So we can make the connection that Nathaniel has a connection because he knows Philip and Andrew. Those are actually Greek names. Philip and Andrew are Greek names. We can make the connection that Nathaniel himself has a connection to Bethsaida, and more specifically, a connection to Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And the feeling of superiority that would come from that connection to Greek thought and Greek philosophy. See, he's from the right side of the tracks. Nazareth, the wrong side of the tracks. So Nathaniel would never think that a person who had all the answers would come from Nazareth. So Nathaniel responds, you have to be kidding me. I don't think so. No way that that guy has the answers and he's from Nazareth. Can't believe that. That's Nathaniel's initial response. And what's interesting is, I think today, many people have exactly the same response. When presented with Christianity, when presented with who Jesus is and what he's done for others and what he could do for them, many people think there's no way. Jesus is from Nazareth. A person, who ha- a person who has all the answers isn't going to come from Nazareth. See, there's many people today who believe they're, they're too educated or too enlightened or have too much culture or too much understanding and they scoff at the idea of the claims of Christianity. How could all of this be wrapped up in this one person, Jesus? And this is how Philip initially, when he instructs Nathaniel on who he is, this is how Nathaniel initially responds to Jesus. He doesn't have all the answers. He cannot have all the answers from life because he's from Nazareth. Christianity was from Nazareth then, and it is still from Nazareth 
today. But here's the thing. Philip recognized that Jesus was the prophet who Moses was talking about. Nathaniel's initial response is, man, I doubt it. I don't think so. I don't think he's truth. But then Jesus does something. So if you're here this morning and you're not quite sure that Jesus is the prophet, that Jesus is truth, I want you to pay particular attention to what Jesus does. So third, let's look at what Jesus does. Look at verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will now see greater things than that. Jesus sees Nathanael approaching him. Jesus identifies Nathanael as an honest person and then speaks truth that only the prophet could know. Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. This isn't Jesus saying, hey, I was stalking you, I was looking at you, and I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. This is Jesus saying that I wasn't anywhere near you, and I saw that you were under the fig tree. I saw and I knew what you were doing before Philip called you. Jesus miraculously, and I mean miraculously, delivers the truth. And this is evident from Nathaniel's response. Look at how Nathaniel now responds. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel goes from nothing good can come from Nazareth to boldly exclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Nathaniel now affirms that Jesus is the prophet. He now affirms and acknowledges that Jesus is truth. And this change happens because Nathaniel sees the miracle that comes from Jesus speaking truth. Nathaniel sees the miracle that comes from Jesus speaking truth. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking to yourself, oh, that's great for Nathaniel. Nathaniel was right there. Jesus is speaking right to him. Nathaniel gets to see Jesus speak truth. He gets to see the miraculous event. He gets to know Jesus is right there. Jesus gives him a miracle. I don't have any miracle. Actually, I think you do have a miracle. Actually, I think every one of us in this room has the miracle of Jesus speaking truth and things changing things that have changed the complete course of history. And every single one of us, if we're willing to see, if we're willing to look, has to acknowledge the miracle of Jesus speaking truth and it changing society. I'd like you to think about this. Jesus preaching his first sermon, one of his first sermons. Look at what he says. This is what he says in one of his first sermons. You have heard it You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what it used to be. Now Jesus says, no, that's not the way it goes. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
This is revolutionary. Before Jesus says this, this is not the norm. This is not the way things happened. Think about the way we view things today. So many years later, do you not think that it is better to be kind to your neighbor than to kill them? Yes, even, don't you even think that it's better to be kind to somebody who's against you than to kill them? That is because of this revolutionary truth that Jesus preaches. You have heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This comes from Christianity. This only comes from Jesus. This is a truth from Nazareth. No place else. There is no other thought system. There is no other philosophy. There is no other religion that says this, only Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that truth spoken by Jesus has changed the course of history. Miraculously changed the course of history. And if that's not enough, how about another one? There's this young rich guy, and this young rich guy goes to Jesus, and he says, hey, I would like eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, keep the commandments. The young guy says, yeah, I got that under control. I'm keeping the commandments, but is there something else that's missing? And look what Jesus writes. Jesus says to him, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Another revolutionary truth from the lips of Jesus. Take care of the poor. In pre-Christian Europe, in pre-Christian Europe, before the monks came, this concept, these concepts of loving your enemies and taking care of the poor was thought to be ridiculous. It was crazy. It was not anywhere near the way the pre-Christian Europeans thought. They thought that the strong survived and the weak were meant to fail. That for society to be successful, the strong could grab all and should grab all that they could get their arms around. In fact, the poor were there. The poor were there. They were meant to suffer. Yet these monks come in and they preach Jesus. They talk about Jesus and they talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And they bring truth from Nazareth. And Nazareth goes to Europe. And revolutionary change takes place where the people of Europe come to know Jesus. They believe in him and they realize that truth means that you are to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and take care of the poor. That's all Jesus. That's Christianity. That's the truth from Nazareth. And it is a miracle because it changed the course of history. And to this day, that truth still speaks into our lives. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Take care of the poor. Jesus is truth. John has philosophically explained to us that Jesus is truth. He then shared an encounter with us between Jesus and Philip and Nathaniel to further explain that Jesus is truth. But the last thing I want you to see is this. It's the so what. So Jesus is truth. Jesus is truth. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for me if Jesus is truth? 
I want you to write this down. If you're taking notes, write it down. If you are not taking notes, write it down in your head. When Jesus is our truth, everything changes. When Jesus is our truth, everything changes. Think about this. Jesus miraculously reveals truth to Nathaniel. Nathaniel then responds, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is Nathaniel acknowledging that Jesus is truth. Then look what Jesus says. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then asked, he then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here, Jesus is referring specifically to something that is going to happen to him in the future that Nathanael gets to be a part of because Nathanael believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is truth. But also in a more general sense, this applies to you and to me as well. If we believe that Jesus is truth, we are going to see things that are greater than this. If we believe that Jesus is truth, the heavens are going to open up and the angels of God, are going to, we're going to see them ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What John is telling us here is that if you believe, you are going to experience life. And you are going to experience a life that is full, abundant, and free. When Jesus is our truth, everything changes. Amen. When Jesus is our truth, everything changes. That's why it is so sad to watch this real housewife of Atlanta. It is a train wreck. It's a train wreck because she is living her truth, and her truth is death. It is causing the death of her marriage. How can that be true? That's not truth. And it's interesting. Whenever I hear somebody say they're living their truth, it always seems to be associated with something that's gone wrong in their life. It was just a few months ago, I heard, a, heard of a young guy, hey, I got high, I got arrested, I got kicked out of my house, but I'm just living my truth. Really? That truth is death. You see, any other truth, any other truth is not just a viable option. It's a lie. Do you understand? Any other truth, if it is not Jesus Christ, is not a viable option. It is a lie. Bruce got up here and prayed for our offering, and he mentioned Lucky and Sonette and the Menisi family, Caleb and Joshua. It was five years ago that my son John and I were in Mozambique with Lucky, with Sonette, with Joshua, and with Caleb. A year later, they have their son Jonathan. Jonathan died. Four-year-old kid. He's dead. But if Jesus is truth, if Jesus is truth, 
Jonathan is more alive than he has ever been. You understand? But listen, if Jesus isn't truth, if Jesus isn't truth, Jonathan's dead. And there is no hope for Lucky or for Sonnet or for Caleb or for Joshua. But that is not the reality. The reality is Jesus is truth. And because he is truth, Jonathan is alive. So Lucky and Sonnet, they're mourning. But they are not mourning without hope. Because their hope is in Jesus, who is truth. So how about Jesus? Jesus is truth. He is the truth that brings life. A full, abundant, meaningful, purposeful life here. When your truth is Jesus, everything changes. Jesus, the truth, is life. When a prophet speaks, you have two choices. And there are only two choices. You can listen to what he has to say, or you can reject his words. Jesus himself, not tongue, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What are you going to do with those words?